You're welcome, Neil. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell, and wait one second, I'm having that static problem in my headphones again, I'm switching over, much better, much better, oh, very much better, uh, as soon as I get my headphones set there, oh, jeez, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell, and today I'm pretending to know about hanging out, I know, I thought I had a good grasp on hanging out, as most people probably think they do. But at least I was unaware of its radical power. Although I should have recognized it as looking back at when we used to hang out prior to the pandemic. That's when some of the most radical things occurred that were definitely nonconformist and our actions were definitely not sanctioned by the state, nor were the often deep conversations that, you know, they were always about challenging authority. It's not only the pandemic that has kept us from hanging out. Not hanging out started with the advent of texting, smartphones, digital technology that makes not hanging out incredibly convenient. What we lose by not hanging out is the intimacy and, yes, the physical connection we have to, you know, other human beings. We've now not hung out for so long. Some of us may have even forgotten how to do so. For that matter, if we embrace the radical power of hanging out, we can actually hang out better than we ever have before. And instead of making hanging out great again, we can make hanging out better than ever. In a few minutes, we will speak with writer Sheila Liming, author of Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. Sheila is an associate professor at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont, where she teaches classes on literature, media and writing. She is also the author of What a Library Means to a Woman, Edith Wharton and the Will to Collect Books, and uh, Office. And that's the name of her other book. And the editor of One, a new edition of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Her essays have appeared in venues like The Atlantic, McSweeney's. we got to get more people on from McSweeney's. Laugham's Quarterly. we got to get more people on from Laugham's Quarterly. The LA Review of Books. Ditto. Public Books and The Point. You can follow her on Twitter at SheCSpeak. That's She, S-E-E, Speak. You can find out more about her at Sheila Liming. Dot com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. I know we just talked 24 hours ago, but anything new by you? Well, I am still recovering from something that happened yesterday after the show. What happened? Well, I went to Grieve Noir's yes. and I bought myself a mango lassi. <laughs> I see. And then when I got in my car, I put the straw in it and they put it in a styrofoam, styrofoam cup. Mm-hmm. And I realized it's really easy for straws to go straight through the sides of those cups. Oh, <laughs> man. And I spilled a mango lassi like all over myself while driving. And uh, yeah, it was a whole event. I'm still cleaning it up. If people do not follow Grieve Noise on Twitter, do it immediately. 
That guy, his Twitter hand, his Twitter account is absolutely fantastic. It need G H A R E E B N A W A Z. It's a Sufi-run uh, restaurant here in the uh, Westridge neighborhood, and uh, they help out the homeless. They feed the homeless for free. They do a lot of really good things for the community. There's now three different Grieb Nawazes around the Chicagoland area. you got to follow them on Twitter. They are absolutely hilarious. But they should switch their styrofoam cups so yes, that you can't stab through them. Definitely. Styrofoam is like a plague for people who are from mid-Michigan because the people who the person who invented styrofoam is from that area and is one of the most powerful people in mid-Michigan. Oh my god! It's really gross. It's really gross. Yesterday I mentioned in passing while speaking with epidemiologist Rob Wallace about capitalism causing COVID. I mentioned that I watched Fox News Channel for a couple of minutes over this past weekend, and what I saw was their meteorologist reporting that in over 70 locations in the northeastern United States, over 70 locations broke records for the warmest January yet. That frightening news was followed up with their prediction that this month would be the warmest February on record as well. When they cut back to the anchors, they both had huge smiles on their faces, saying they were enjoying the weather, that they love it when their weatherman gives them good news. So I mentioned that on social media, and Ronaldo Magaldi, who does Rotten History for us, he pointed out on social media that it's the same with weather reports uh, that you get from local TV stations. And sure enough, last night I saw the local news when they reported that today's high on February 8th was predicted to be 50 degrees, which is frightening. Both anchors got giddy with laughter and said they were loving the warm temperatures. So look for my Patreon monologue uh, this week to be on the intense amount of denialism we are bombarded with each and every day here in the U.S. More important than any of that, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? When we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can send it an email to me at chuck at thisishell.com. Patreon patrons, you can uh, post it or you can post your answer at patreon.com slash thisishell. We post the question from hell there first. So our Patreon patrons get the first crack at the question from hell. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a brand new moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. Lindsay, what is Jeff doing again during this week's Moment of Truth? During this week's Moment, Jeff spills the secret version of Victoria and Abdul. Have you ever heard of that movie? No. It uh, came out like maybe four or five years ago, and not very long ago. And it's about the uh, affair between Queen Victoria and basically her butler named Abdul. Hmm. And that's all I could gather from the trailer, and it was not a movie I wanted to see. <laughs> Yeah, not really I, interested. I've never heard of these people. I'm glad. I'm glad. I just don't want to see anything about <laughs> queens of England. I'm not interested. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of this is hell stuff: the t-shirt, the trucker, or a winter cap, the coffee mug, the face covering, or the face mask. The this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the, this century, as well as the tote bag. Yes, we have a. This is Hell tote bag. It's kind of embarrassing, but we do. And you can find all that stuff at thisishell.com when clicking on support. And now a word from our sponsor. And as we are completely and only listener supported, our sponsor 
is you. Last week, listener Ty S. sent an email suggesting we speak with Atlanta-based writer and editor Rachel Garbus, who posted the Welcome to the Hell World article, Stopping Cop City, the Murder of Tortuguita, and the Trees that Got Us Here. So, we did. And Rachel was on our show on the uh, Monday, January 30th show. And you can hear that conversation for free. All of our uh, interviews are posted on our site from 2014 on, and they're all for free at our website, thisishell.com. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and search on um, Satran Rachel's name, her last name, Garbus, G-A-R-B-U-S. If you want to hear a specific someone on our show, just email your guest suggestion like Ty S. did last week. And if we have your suggestion on air, your suggested guest on air, we'll personally thank you during that conversation as we did with Ty. So there's clearly a lot of interest in the Stop Cop City Defend Atlanta Forest campaign because we got an email from Jess L. who writes, Hi Chuck and Alex, it's Jess. Oh, hey, it's, it's from our former producer, Jess Lipka, who uh, last year hosted an event up here in our space where he showed a documentary on Stop Cop City. Jess writes, I'm emailing about setting up an interview with a forest defender for This Is Hell. I see that you just had a journalist on to discuss the Stop Cop City movement, and that's great. I know that you like to go off of writing generally, but I wanted to suggest having someone who's been in the forest and involved in Atlanta on the ground in order to encourage others to find ways to participate in the movement. Much has changed about the situation, even in the past 24 hours. Just sent this on February 1st, so that's a week ago today that things on the ground were actually still changing and fast. Jess adds, there has been a call for a week of action at the end of the month. It would be helpful for the movement to revisit the situation in the lead up to this week. I'll attach the flyer. It would also give a clear sense of what someone would be getting into if they decided to travel to the forest. I have a friend who's been active in Atlanta who's expressed interest. I'd be happy to connect you both. I'm also not offended if you feel that you don't want to continue discussing the movement so soon after already doing an interview. Feeling energized in this moment, events appear to be speeding up once again. Regardless, I hope we run into each other at the bar or elsewhere soon. Cheers. Jess, first of all, I uh, we will be sharing that flyer that Jess sent to us later on today on social media. And thanks, Jess. You are correct. I don't want to follow up on a story that quickly, usually. But as events are changing at a rapid pace in Atlanta and the corporate establishment media refuses to cover what's happening in Atlanta's forests as big media continues their refusal to be critical of policing in general. So we are working with Jess uh, with uh, hopefully getting uh, the Atlanta Forest Defender he knows on the show. If you have a guest or topic suggestion, send it to chuck at thisishell.com or tweet it at us at thisishellradio or contact us via fbook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on the show, we will learn exactly how hanging out can be a radical act. We will tell you what happened on our most recent episode of... Oh, no, we did that yesterday. Uh, Sebastian will be delivering a past inside the present where Sebastian, who is an actual historian, gives us the historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. This week, Sebastian is talking about slave resistance and how both actual slave resistance and the fear of slave uprisings shaped the relationship between black and white Americans to this day. 
We'll have more from our sponsor, I think, maybe. I'm not too sure. And as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you, and we'll tell you what's happening the rest of this week here on This Is Hell, live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. Everybody knows how to hang out, right? It's really pretty simple. I mean, there's nothing to it. All you have to do is just sit there and, well, hang out, right? But to what extent do we actually hang out anymore? Nowadays, most people stare at their phones even when they're in the company of friends or family members who they have hun- have not hung out with even for quite some time. We may actually be losing the ability, the skill of hanging out. Here to help us have a better understanding of hanging out and how it can be a truly radical act, writer Sheila Liming is author of Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sheila. Hi there, Chuck. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really love this book. It's a really enjoyable book. Uh, you can follow Sheila on Twitter at SheCSpeak and can find out more about her at SheilaLiming.com. You write about visiting friends in eastern Minnesota right at the beginning of your book. Uh, Red Lake Falls, <laughs> the town where Sherry and Virgil lived, as you describe, friends of yours, had recently been named the worst place to live in America by a Washington <laughs> Post reporter, so why not visit, uh, who used data, apparently, to justify that ranking. You write how your partner and you, Dave, and I had driven out that mor- morning from our home in Grand Forks, which sits about 30 miles west, right where the Minnesota border crosses up to its neighbor, uh, North Dakota. It was Sherry, who had invited us, luring us with promises of late season produce, squash and potatoes and pumpkins from the fields that she and Virgil tended together on their land, apples from their trees, late season raspberries that could still be found clinging to their branches. That hardly sounds like the world's worst place to live or the worst place to live in America. So how bad is Red Red Lake's fall? And more importantly, what is not quantifiable in your opinion about (laughs) how good a Uh, or bad a place can be. Red Lake Falls, Minnesota is an amazing place and an amazing community. And part of the reason why it's actually amazing is because of people like Sherry and Virgil who live there. Um, Two wonderful, radical, inspiring individuals who had a huge uh, influence on me when I was living in that part of the country. And um, really, you know, took umbrage, as one would, at this um, Washington Post reporter calling their their county and their town the worst place to live in America. And also ranking it um, partially based on ugliness uh, that he used uh, data like access to parks and uh, like natural resources, like lakes and things like that to um, apparently come up with this decision. But it's a wonderful place. And part of what makes it so wonderful is that um, it's been deemed undesirable to many people, but not, of course, to the farmers who live there and like to grow things in the incredibly fertile soil um, there. And so, you know, my friends, Sherry and Virgil, who were also colleagues of mine back when I was working at the University of North Dakota, um, had made a wonderful life there in that area, um, a wonderful farm that produced all kinds of incredible things and were also like wonderful activists in their own community there too. So they taught me a lot about the world. That's why I opened the book with hanging out with them. With hanging out with them, in your opinion, is the enjoyment of just hanging out also not quantifiable with data? And if so, what makes the enjoyment of hanging out unquantifiable? Does that inability for us to quantify the enjoyment of hanging out make it so we don't recognize how important it is or that it has a radical power. 
Absolutely. Uh, hanging out uh, resists quantification, and that's why so many people view it as a waste of time. Because when we're really hanging out, which I define as spending unstructured time in the company of others or daring to do nothing and to do it along with other people, um, we're not really producing anything in a strict sense um, or in a strict way of interpreting what we normally think of as value. And so therefore, our products are, cannot be quantified, but that doesn't mean that we're not making anything. The things that we're making in those moments are our relationships to each other, um, which is our existence for being on the earth in the first place, and also something that makes life in our communities a little bit more sustainable and a little bit more livable. So that means that you know, hanging out is misunderstood as not doing anything, as being unproductive. Is it a mistake for even those people who are hanging out to say, hey, we're not, I just don't want to do anything. I just want to sit there. <laughs> is that a, the wrong thing to do when you're approaching the idea of hanging out? Well, yes and no. Um, one, I think it's very useful to recognize that you are being productive, even when you think you aren't sometimes. Um, but also, like, who said we had to be productive 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Um, we should be able to, like, you know, claim the right to rest and to nothingness and to, uh, you know, being at ease sometimes without the burden of that productivity weighing us down. But hanging out is something that has clearly been threatened by the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think the pandemic has an impact on the way, not that we hang out, but the way that we view hanging out, whether we recognize it or not, does the pandemic reveal the importance uh, or, and as you write, the power of hanging out? Did the pandemic, re did it affect your writing and your view on hanging out? Yeah, I think so. I think that hanging out was becoming hard even before the pandemic came along and made it harder, but it certainly did change our views towards that activity. And one of the things that it did, I think, is that it introduced for us all these kind of replacement activities that at the beginning of the pandemic, we might have even felt like, well, this is weird. I'm doing this instead of hanging out with friends or I'm doing this instead of spending time in physical proximity to others. But then after a while, we kind of just got used to it and we started to like see those replacement activities as good enough and as a kind of means for settling for a decreased capacity of social interaction. Um, you know, we're, under, we're talking about like texting friends instead of actually getting together with them or even calling them, um, or, you know, having Zoom calls with people as opposed to trying to create physical proximity to them. Um, you know, all of this started out feeling a little bit strange and then very quickly just started to feel normal and acceptable. And you, meant, uh, you mentioned about uh, visiting your friends Virgil and Shelley that you just showed up at their house for lunch and yet they, were, they invited you in. They didn't even know who you were when, they, when you called and by the time the phone call is over, they're like, oh, it's you two, great, <laughs> come on over. They'd already invited you not knowing who, who you were. But showing exactly. up at someone's house for lunch can be an inconvenience if the person being dropped on is quote unquote busy, especially with more people working from home. They could be working or they just had plans to do something else at that moment. Does being busy with work and all of our other responsibilities in this increasingly busy world make the joy, if you will, of hanging out an inconvenience? And what, what happens to hanging out when, what happens to that joy when we see hanging out as an inconvenience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I try to explore at depth in the book is uh, the idea that hanging out itself is structured by improvisation and spontaneity, and that there is 
a lot of um, equanimity to be found in that idea that people enter into a situation and then once they're in the situation, they start to sort of improvise what's going to happen in it. And that they do that together, which itself can be kind of a radical act rather than having somebody set the agenda for what has to happen and having everybody else follow along. So if hanging out requires spontaneity, then the busier we allow ourselves to get or the busier we feel ourselves forced to become under capitalism means that we have fewer and fewer opportunities for that kind of spontaneity and that improvisation. Um, so I often think of the phenomenon these days of how like we got to a place in our society where it is now generally like considered to be socially acceptable to text or email someone before calling them. It's almost like you're making a reservation for a time at which you can call them on the phone and talk to them. And I find that very fascinating that, you know, once upon a time we would have just called each other and now we have to like slot into somebody else's appointment calendar the idea of the phone call itself so that they can like be prepared and make sure they have time set aside to actually talk to us. Um, it's fascinating for me to think that we don't even have time to talk to each other in an unplanned or spontaneous way that we have to kind of reserve and set aside time to do that because our lives have become so scheduled and so busy. How does that scheduling of our time affect the way in which we view time? Um, well, I think it becomes an increasingly burdensome view of time, um, where there are a certain amount, amount of hours in every day that have to be planned out um, and filled accordingly. And that if something runs, you know, afoul of that schedule, if some unplanned element gets introduced to it, suddenly we have chaos, we have anarchy, or we have something we, we just don't know how to deal with that like throws us off, uh, you know, um, throws us off of what we were doing previously. Um, so thinking of spontaneity as a burden, as a problem, as something that infringes upon our time, I think is a real problem uh, for thinking about how we come together and actually try to achieve things within a democracy, within, you know, any kind of a society where we have to live and interact with each other. That is, see, this is why I love your book. Uh, so <laughs> you write that uh, digital devices and technologies make that other kind of hanging out easier that by using those technologies, but they also strip it of the experiences and particularities of place. What gets lost along with those particularities are deeper shades of connection, intimacy, and meaning. Are we losing that connection, intimacy, and meaning as communication technologies develop? And is connection to the world via technology leading to a disconnected, uh, more local society in any way? Are we seeing a greater connection with the greater world and a loss of connection with our smaller world? Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking of it, um, that in you know, removing ourselves from the particularities of place by instead allowing ourselves to primarily interact with one another through digital devices and through the infrastructure of the internet, we enter into a place that's much bigger and a place which is actually, um, and here I'm gonna quote the writer Jenny O'Dell on this, which is placeless. It's this kind of lack of a place itself, um, a anti-local context in which we interact with each other, um, you know, because we find things that we have in common, ignoring the things that we might have in common with people who are right there next to us, who are in our own community, who maybe even could benefit from our help, our assistance, our interactions um, right there in the moment. So I think, you know, one phenomenon of this that I observe, I'm a teacher and 
one thing I often observe when I walk into a classroom um, these days is how I will get to a classroom where I have, you know, 15 to 20 students who are all gathered in the same physical space for the same reason. They're all there to learn about the same subject. They've all elected to be there in one way or another. And they're all sitting there on their phones and they're talking to people who exist somewhere else. And I find that fascinating because like right there in the moment, they have sort of the bare minimum requirements for commonality. They have the ability to like start talking to each other and interacting, but they're choosing, or maybe even not choosing, just feeling compelled to give their attention to an audience that exists somewhere else. So ignoring the local, ignoring what's in the moment for the sake of a hypothetical audience that exists who knows where. It's funny. It kind of sounds like that phrase, seeing the forest instead of the trees, you know, or seeing. Yeah, it. yeah. Uh, so uh, I just want to mention uh, one part where you are writing about uh, Jenny O'Dell because she's been on the show before. You write, one reason to fight for the right to hang out then begins with an awareness of the potential that digital technologies and devices possess to obscure the realities of place. This is an idea that the artist and writer Jenny O'Dell uh, develops in her book, How to Do Nothing. In it, O'Dell investigates, as you were saying, the merits of what she calls placefulness which stands opposed to the placelessness of an optimized life spent online. Through an extension of Odell's observations, it becomes possible to see placelessness as a primary means by which digital technology seeks to convert all time into work time. Jenny's been on the show in the past, as I was saying, and listeners can hear that interview for free by searching on her last name, Odell, at thisishell.com. And she has a new book coming out in March, and we're hoping to have her back on the show. The new book is called Saving Time, not surprisingly, discovering a life beyond the clock. Again, you conclude digital technology seeks to convert all time into work time. Do you think that is intentional? Did those designing and developing digital technology know they were converting all time into work time? And is that why digital technology is so successful under capitalism, especially neoliberalism? Because digital technology puts profits before people, puts work before life, puts business before friends and family, puts isolation before timing, uh, before hanging out, and puts, you know, being busy before time. It, it is, do you think that is all intentional? Uh, certainly, yeah. <laughs> it is intentional. Um, somebody who has really inspired my own thinking on this, and I was grateful that he offered a blurb to my book to Hanging Out, is um, the cultural theorist Andrew Ross. And I saw Andrew Ross speak, ooh, this is probably 15 years ago. So like before we really even had smartphones, um, I saw him give a presentation um, once where he was talking about um, sewing machines in the 19th century, portable sewing machines that basically extended a laborer's day for laborers who were working in mills or in factories where they were producing textiles and how these portable sewing machines, you know, originally sewing machines were sort of like 1960s computers. They were gigantic. They were heavy. They were made out of steel. But with the invention of these portable ones, actually workers could take work home with them, which increased the expectations for how much work they were supposed to produce within a given shift. And those expectations were driven up to the point where no human could produce all that work in a given shift. And the expectation was then that they would finish it at home. So basically, basically extending the workday with the help of portable technology. When I saw Andrew Ross talk about this many years ago, he was um, making an analogy between those sewing machines and laptop computers. The laptop computers did something very similar for us. Um, they allowed our workday to extend beyond the bounds of the work period itself and also continued to drive up expectations for how much work had to be produced now that we had those machines that could help us produce it any time of day. And this was even before smartphones debuted in 2007. And like like really began to ramp up things because now
now our laptops had effectively gotten even smaller. Um, we could put them in our pockets. It wasn't even a burden to carry them around with us. And now our workday is basically just omnipresent. Um, this is why in countries like France, right, there are laws um, that are at least allowing workers the right to not to have to answer emails on weekends or outside of working hours if they don't want to. Um, but in the United States, we don't have those same protections and those expectations continue to creep. And we are expected to answer emails on weekends, to be responsive to our smartphones in a work capacity, effectively extending our workday so that it's 24-7. That reminds me of an article I read about in Bangladesh, and people were very concerned about the uh, places where a lot of the gar- garment workers were working in sweatshops that were unsafe buildings, and they were collapsing, and people were dying. And so the companies, one of their ideas has been, and they've already been, that's already been implemented, they realize that their buildings are unsafe, so now they're having all of their workers do the sewing at home. Oh, God. In order to avoid the problem. So it's the exact same thing happening again. You write how you are interested in what it means to forge those very things, connection, intimacy, and meaning, in a world that feels increasingly hostile to all three. How do you see the world feeling hostile to connection, intimacy, and meaning? Um, Well, first is on the, you know, on the front of time, I guess I would say. Um, and obviously this is something that Odell is interested in too. Um, but the way that that time has effectively been stolen from us. Um, and I'm not just talking about stolen from us in the context of work in a formal sense, but also stolen from us informally um, in the way that the vast majority of the time that we spend not working is meant to prepare us to be better workers the next time we enter into a working environment, which effectively makes it so that we are working all the time. And it's really hard to claim leisure time or to claim time for what I call hanging out in the book, um, which is that unstructured time that we would spend in the company of other people. So the world has become um, hostile to the concept of hanging out, to claiming space for leisure, for claiming space for intimacy, and also claiming space and creating connection. And as a result, we end up feeling more isolated from each other and more at a loss of what to do um, and how to change things around us. Is it hostile because it's perceived as an anti-capitalist act? That's a great question. And I think uh, at least 50% of the answer is yes. Um, And I say 50% because I got to think about who it is who's perceiving it in that way. Um, But certainly some people are, right? Because when you are engaging in leisure, at least true leisure, like hanging out. And I'm not thinking about leisure like in terms of um, the leisure that is itself some way productive or mirrors work. Um, But true leisure, like when you're really not producing anything, you're not making any money, you're not like adding to the economy with any kinds of products or anything like that. um, You are engaging in what would be termed in a capitalist sense, waste and wastefulness. You are creating waste in the act of not creating any products that can be used. And I think that that is a very dangerous way to go about seeing things because, of course, there's all kinds of things that get produced in those moments. They're just not the things that we can sell to each other or, you know, consider as uh, commodities. You write of not hanging out or recognizing the radical power of hanging out. Uh, This is a world, by the way, that started to take shape long before the average person ever learned the word coronavirus. Indeed, the conditions of this world have been forming for decades in response to an intricate combination of pressures. And I want to mention these because it's fascinating. The The expansion of digital technologies and our increasing reliance on them, as we've been discussing, the growth of the private sector and accompanying diminishment of the public sphere, policies and social 
social practices that champion individualism and make social connection more difficult, and an ethos of do-it-yourself ruggedness that has taken the place of shared support structures. The coronavirus pandemic made all of these things worse and perhaps more visible than the naked eye, but it did not invent them. We were having a hard time hanging out well before COVID-19 came along and made hanging out hard. I have a nephew who's uh, 20 years old now, but when he was like 15, he told me that he would go to parties and he couldn't stand <laughs> parties. And I was like, why, why, why don't you like parties? And he said, nobody talks to each other. We all just sit in a room on our phones. We might be texting each other, but we're just sitting there. He was like, it's just not fun. And he was telling me how he didn't even like hanging out with his friends anymore because he can do that at his home. How does the growth of the private sector, that one component that you mentioned, how does the growth of the private sector and accompanying diminishment of the public sphere lead to a loss of connection, intimacy, and meaning? How does a reliance on the private sector rather than the public sphere threaten hanging out? To be fair, those parties that <laughs> that he describes sound kind of miserable, right? Yeah, they Showing do. up in a room <laughs> where everybody's just like looking at their phones and not talking to each other. Yeah, pass. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, but in terms of the growth of the private sector, I'm I'm very interested in this, and I I kind of track it in pieces throughout the book. Um, I try to link it to you know the diminishment of public spaces um, that we can exist in um, together uh, versus uh, the growth and, you know, these days the skyrocketing costs of things like real estate and rents um, and the growth of domestic space and the like escalating expectations for what dis- domestic space has to include. Um, this is something I got interested in when I was living uh, in North Dakota, back in the land of Sherry and Virgil. And uh, we had a public park in our town that was um, going to be Uh, basically rebuilt uh, for condo space. And there was a group of people in town who were really invested in protesting this, and I was among them, because the park had also been kind of like a de facto space for artistic creation. There were these murals in it. There were these kind of like hodgepodge statues and sculptures. But also during the nicer months, it was like a place where people would hang out and gather. And it was, you know, public space in a town that didn't have a lot of public space. And um, we eventually lost. And the park was um, sold by the city um, for the cost of $1 to a developer who put a high-rise condo structure on it for luxury apartments. And one thing I was interested in at the time is, like, obviously, we need housing. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm not saying no to that. But I'm, I was fascinated by the arguments that sprang up around, like, why do we need housing right here? I mean, we live in a prairie state. We have nothing but land around us. We have nothing but space. Why do we have to take away public space in order to make more room for private space? So that kind of got me interested in thinking about this subject several years ago. And then while I was writing the book, um, I continued to develop it to think about how in a world with decreased access to public space, we're more reliant on what we can privately claim as our own. And therefore, yeah, it becomes more uncomfortable to enter into public space. You know, when your basis of experience is private space that is controlled, that is curated, that is um, subject to the whims of whoever owns it um, and wants to say what happens with that private space, it becomes an uncomfortable venture to enter into public space or to enter into somebody else's private space, uh, to trade that feeling of control for the feeling of control, uh, like lack of control that you get when you exist in somebody else's domestic environment. Or when a public space becomes a private space, as in a park becoming privatized, there's a a park, I'm starting to forget the name of it, uh, in the middle of downtown Detroit called Marcius Park, and it used to be a public Mm. space, and now they have private security, it's been privatized, and if you don't look right, if you're not dressed right, 
you're asked to leave. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a very uncomfortable thing to be in a place that was once public and has now been privatized. Again, you mentioned how an ethos of do-it-yourself ruggedness that has taken the place of shared support structures also causes that loss of connection, intimacy, and meaning that we can get when actually hanging out with each other, which very much sounds like the characteristics of neoliberalism. To what extent do you think <laughs> the public recognizes this loss? How much do we recognize this loss of connection, intimacy, and meaning, even if we don't want to fess up to it? Yes. And you're absolutely right. That's exactly what I was thinking about was neoliberalism, but um, going to great pains to not call it that <laughs> because the word sometimes gets um, overused and obscured sometimes. Um, but yeah, that's what I was thinking about. And, you know, my thinking in this book in Hanging Out uh, grew at least in part out of the book that I wrote previously, which was called Office. And I published it in 2020. It was published through the Bloomsbury Object Lesson series. Um, and in that book, Office, I was actually thinking about the end of offices, you know, these spaces that we had been using uh to do white collar work for roughly the past 170 years that were sort of reaching their final resting place. Um, and then of course the COVID pandemic came along and made that even more pronounced as everybody stopped working in their offices and went elsewhere. And you know, one thing I was thinking about um, with that book was how offices actually provide access to shared resources. One of the things that we do when we work in a you know, co-working environment like an office is we share things. We share electricity, we share Wi-Fi internet, we share share shelter, we share, you know, um, heat and air and water and everything else. And when we stop having offices, we have to provide all those things for ourselves. So it's not just, you know, the computer itself, which maybe your work gives you, or maybe they don't, <laughs> um, but it's also the Wi-Fi internet. And it's also like the shelter itself and the ability to exist in a space that's comfortable. And the more we are left on our own to provide those things for ourselves, I think the more we kind of lapse into this sort of ethos of that rugged do-it-yourselfness that's like, well, I did it myself, why can't you? So this turning away from this idea that we ought to be sharing resources in the first place, that there are good things to be found in sharing resources, including benefits to the planet, um, and this sort of acceptance of a situation of we're all on our own and we got to do it by ourselves. So why do we not? connect that loss of connection, intimacy, and meaning. And as we have discussed many times in the past on our show, and you discussed in your book as well, loneliness, why don't we connect that to neoliberal capitalism, to the system we live within? Why do we not hold our current ethos and structures responsible for that loss? Well, I think many people do. Um, And I am obviously not the first to talk about this subject or to write about it. You know, people have been writing about this subject for the past 20 years. And with the growth of digital technologies and smartphones, we've had a lot of commentary on it over the past 20 years. I think about Sherry Turkle, who wrote the book um, Alone Together in 2011, so 12 years ago, um, but already thinking about how smartphones and digital technology were creating this epidemic of loneliness, um, where we were all kind of existing side by side, but in separate states where we couldn't reach out and connect to each other. So I think those connections have been made, um, but I think the pace at which that epidemic of loneliness has been growing and the conditions which foster it have been growing have made it almost difficult um, to offer commentary because it grows so quickly, it metastasizes, and we're left you know, scrambling along and trying to survive as those things metastasize. And meanwhile, yes, trying to also figure out like how to have friendships and how to keep in touch with you know, our family family members and how to keep the people like close to us that we need and also how to connect with strangers at the same time too. 
We are speaking with writer Sheila Wyming, author of Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. She is also the author of What a Library Means to a Woman, Edith Wharton, and The Will to Collect Books, and the book Office, and the editor of one, a new edition of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. You can follow her on Twitter at SheCSpeak, and can find out more about her at SheilaLyming.com. You quote writer Amelia Horgan, observing as work extends over more and more of human social life, possible countervailing forms of recognition from friendship, from our hobbies, from shared social practices, dissolve. You add, along with that dissolution comes the mutation of basic social interactions, which start to resemble the kind we are forced to perform at work. What's (laughs) wrong with our basic social interactions resembling the way we act at work? Oh, so much. And I'm so glad you brought up Amelia Horgan because she's just a fabulously smart person who I had a lot in mind while I was writing this book. Speaking of people who've been thinking about this already. Yeah. So what I'm thinking about there is basically the concept of mandatory fun, as it's called in um, work environments. And I think most people are familiar um, with this where, uh, you know, workplaces have some kind of function or some kind of requirement um, that the workers themselves like get together and experience something that is branded as fun or like extracurricular to the work experience, but in fact, of course, is a required part of it. Nobody enjoys these experiences, I don't think. They all feel like they're inauthentic and they're forced and they're required to be there and that makes it unfun itself, which is not the same thing as saying that they don't like their fellow workers. And it's not the same thing as saying that they don't wanna support their fellow workers. It's more the feeling of having to be there under duress um, that bothers people. And so I was thinking about that as a kind of um, a mandate or a form that ends up filtering into daily life and the way we conduct our own relationships. Um, And as I was thinking about hanging out as a more kind of organic activity, the flip side of that or the reverse of it really is this concept of mandatory fun. And there's a danger that when our lives become so intensely scheduled that even the fun we would plan and opt for ourselves becomes mandatory fun because we have to slot it in between all these other tasks on our calendar. I think many people were coming to this conclusion uh, during the height of the COVID pandemic when a lot of us were living our lives on our computers and you know through Zoom or Google meetings or something like that, when the fun thing would be sandwiched right next to the work thing or the thing that you had to do, the required thing, and all of a sudden you couldn't make any sense or differentiate between them, they were all just these required appointments in your calendar, regardless of whether or not you had opted for them. Mandatory fun sounds like the band, uh, the worst band name ever. <laughs> I do not want to go see that band whatsoever. So how, It is at least the name of a Weird Al Yankovic album. So. <laughs> there you go. Uh, how much do we recognize, because on uh, Mandatory Fun, a, a really close friend of mine, he was working for a major corporation, and after a couple of years, the corporation said, we're going to take everybody on a cruise. It's going to be great. And he thought oh, no. for a second, wow, that's fantastic. And then the second second, he said, oh, my God, this is about surveilling us and see how we act in a social setting. Oh, totally. Yeah. How how much do we recognize what you call a mutation taking place in ourselves, that the way we act at work, the role we play uh, for work becomes the way we act at home? How much do we actually recognize that division? Because as my friend was telling me, he was like 99% of the people he was talking to were super excited about it and they didn't realize the surveillance aspect of the cruise. Wow. 
that sounds so horrifying. I mean, the concept of a cruise is horrifying to me anyway, but the added part of like a work cruise. I know it's the combination of the two worst possible things, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Terrible. I think you're right in using the word surveillance and thinking about that as the lens to, um, consider how mandatory fun works um because it's not necessarily like you were saying like um that we don't want to have fun and it's not like we don't want to hang out or even that like we don't want to like get to know our coworkers better or spend time around them it's the added feeling that we are not free from consequences when we do that that our actions are being surveilled and that whatever we do in that environment will bear upon you know those the situation of employment that we find ourselves in um, or have some sort of direct consequence upon our feelings about our job and how we're able to do it. And that's what makes those situations unfun, um, is the power dynamic that's at play there. So, you know, as we sort of allow or, you know, not really allow, but um, end up seeing the working day extended over most of our uh, living and waking lives, I think that feeling of surveillance comes with a lot of that creep of the working day. The feeling that we are not free to do whatever we want or to act however we want, or even to form relationships in ways that we would choose to do because we know that there are certain expectations that are at play and that we are being surveilled in one way or another in order to meet those expectations. So I talked briefly in the book um, in one section about um, surveillance technologies that have been used to monitor workers, even when they're outside of like the formal confines of work, like a working environment, like an office. So I talk about the Microsoft study that was done on Microsoft employees tracking their keystrokes to see like how much time during the day they were working. And what they actually found was that um, during the pandemic, especially, they were working far more than the normal 40 hours a week. Um, I think these uh, studies are often conducted in the fear that workers aren't working enough. But what They found out in this particular instance is that they were working far in excess of the amount that they were supposed to be working because they couldn't stop. And also because the workday tended to sort of get extended into the evening. There was like one more email to answer or a couple more problems to deal with or something like that to set up for the next working day. So you tell the story about uh, Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci uh, spent spending more than 10 years in prison from 1926 until his death in April of 1937. His crime was protesting against fascism through his activism and writing deeds that under emergency legislation following the attempted assassination of the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini were made illegal in Italy. Gramsci died in prison and about a decade afterward became posthumously famous through the publication of his celebrated prison notebooks, which which combine essays on political theory with historical analysis and criticism of the carceral state. In most of them, he employs a version of a standard sign-off in these notebooks and on letters that he sends to family that says, I embrace you. He uses this language of physical embrasure, even when the correspondent is a friend, a fellow intellectual, or a political ally, adopting it to say things like, I embrace you fraternally together with all our friends. So why do we... He's isolated in prison, which is the globally common practice of punishing people by incarcerating them, by keeping them, keeping someone separated from the people they love and the people they associate with. So why do we so often choose isolation, choose to not being out, but only connect virtually over our phones online? Why do we choose to isolate ourselves when in our criminal justice system, isolation is punishment for being found guilty of breaking the law? Is it simply convenience or do we really not have a choice? 
That is the million dollar question. And it's a good one. Um, and I appreciate the reference to Gramsci there because uh, he was kind of the beginning of my thinking about this. Um, we wield isolation as a punishment in our society for people who um, break the law, who commit crimes against society. And the worst form of punishment we have short of the death penalty itself is solitary confinement is the act of being isolated completely in prison. So kept away from friends and family, but also from other people in general. Um, at the same time, on the other side of that, we exercise privilege to choose isolation for ourselves. So I'm thinking of, you know, the drive to buy a really big house. That means that you don't have to like be very close to your neighbors or hear what's going on in their lives or to like have huge yards that are surrounding our houses or to make sure that we have cars so we don't have to share public transportation with other people because that could introduce, you know, unsavory elements into our daily commute or something like that. We, um, we exercise our privilege to create space for ourselves, even though we also view all that space in isolation as a punishment that we would force upon others who do crimes against society. It's highly ironic until we start to think about the idea of perceived agency or choice. And I think that's why we view isolation as a kind of privilege itself or solitude as a privilege itself is because when we are able to choose it, then we view it itself as a good thing simply because we had the ability to choose it. So it's kind of like saying that as long as you're able to choose something, your choice is obviously right and good. But if you're only choosing from a small array of options and all the options suck, then that doesn't necessarily mean that the choice itself is all that good. You also mentioned uh, former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek H. Murthy explaining that the human body, bred to function as a social animal, quote, reads isolation and often even the threat of isolation as emergency. You add that what results is a state of hypervigilance that is designed to operate with one goal in mind, self-preservation. The type of nervous hypervigilance inspired by isolation or even by mere prospect of isolation has historically resulted in antisocial responses and tendencies in humans, including the inability to experience or share feelings of desire or delight. So loneliness leads to hypervigilance, leads to self-preservation, causing antisocial responses and an inability to experience or share feelings of joy. Did you see that reaction taking place during the first year of the pandemic prior to the vaccine being available? Did enforced loneliness cause antisocial behavior. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think we're still living with the effects of that right now. Um, and I should point out that I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of anything that sort of resembles biological essentialism, which is some of what I see in Murthy's work. But I also find a little bit of that very useful for thinking about the social response to isolation. So not even necessarily the bodily response, but the social response, how we um, understand ourselves in isolation and then how we extend that understanding of ourselves to these kind of um, fearful reactions or antisocial tendencies, even when we're not in isolation. And this is something that we're still dealing with. Um, obviously the pandemic is not completely gone from our lives. We're still dealing with the effects of it in a very real and physical sense or viral sense, but we're gonna be living with the social effects of it for a long time. And I don't know, maybe forever at this point. Um, and I say this, you know, as a college professor who, uh, you know, spent one year teaching entirely on the internet and then another year teaching basically in a hybrid format for people who were well enough or able to attend class in person while masked. And then only just this year started teaching to classrooms full of people unmasked in a kind of quote unquote normal sense. 
again. Um, and I had expected that, you know, oh, well, once we're back in the classroom, everything is going to go back to normal. Things are going to be better. Everybody is going to be so excited by social proximity that they're just going to like dive headlong into all these things that we're doing together. But that's not what happened. Um, in fact, what I have witnessed is a greater sense of caution and an increase in antisocial behaviors that are meant to protect a person, but also become a barrier to um, to recourses or to like finding connections and, and finding help with each other. You also write that while modern communication technologies tend to make the space of even friendly disagreement feel more narrow and thus also more uncomfortable, uh, hanging out is actually about the opposite. Hanging out, which involves killing time in the presence of others, is about carving out a space that is big enough to accommodate these kinds of relational fluctuations, allowing them to stretch and unfurl as necessary. If digital technology, as opposed to hanging out, leads to disagreements feeling more narrow and more uncomfortable, do you think not hanging out and substituting it with digital communications plays a role in the growing amount of hate and vitriol we've been seeing in the last several years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and one way to think about this is to think about what we do when we're in digital spaces and things get uncomfortable. So our our reactions when we're inside those spaces, um, or rather those anti-spaces, since they're not really space at all, um, but our reaction is often to cut the interaction short in one way or another. When we encounter an opinion we don't like or a take that makes us uncomfortable or just something that you know threatens to broach disagreements, um, we can exit the browser tab, we can put the phone away, we can mute somebody, we can block them if we're pissed off enough about it. Um, we can basically resort to all these um, actions that are meant to shield ourselves from any continuing conflict. Um, so we can just shut it down. And then those actions might be carried out before we even understand what the conflict itself is, even when we're just getting a kind of initial impression of disagreement. So I try to think about in the book how that extends to in-person activity and to hanging out and how when we're actually with a person face to face or with a group of people, we don't have those same options available to us. Um, or if we do, if we try to exercise them, there's going to be um, like bigger social consequences for engaging in that kind of behavior. So if we're in a group of people and someone disagrees with somebody else and somebody just takes their ball and leaves, um, that's usually seen as like immature behavior. But in internet spaces, it's not. It's completely normal. It's completely acceptable. So. Um, I'm interested in thinking about how the acceptability of virtual space doesn't necessarily carry over to acceptability in um, real life um, or in face-to-face -face interactions in practice. And yeah, that means that maybe we have sort of like a lowered threshold for dealing with that discomfort when it crops up in those real life situations. And that is a discomfort that we need to become a little bit more um, comfortable with, that we need to reacquaint ourselves with and develop a musculature for so that we can like actually engage with each other without freaking out. This, you write that this is not a making, uh, <laughs> this is not a make hanging out great again manifesto, although <laughs> if you do put out those hats, please tell me, uh, but rather <laughs> a call to remember what it was that we used to do and why we used to do it as a means of subjecting our social muscles to more rigorous and well-rounded training now today. The point of that training is to prepare us for a more socially enhanced as opposed to socially divided future. 
So what's wrong with looking back nostalgically at how we hung out before digital technology and then trying to recreate what we did when we were hanging out back then? What's wrong with making hanging out great again? Well, I'm a progressive. And so that means I'm always trying to look forward to the future. And I do view nostalgia as like a red flag in my world, because obviously it's not that hanging out used to be perfect and now it stinks. It's not as simple as that. It's more that hanging out used to be more widespread. And that doesn't mean that it was always perfect when it was widespread, but it was just happening more often and now it's happening less. So it's an issue of less or more as opposed to like good or bad that I'm more interested in. But of course, I want good things to come out of those interactions and I want more hanging out to happen so that good things can come from them. And that requires looking towards the future. Um, it requires, yes, like a little bit of understanding of history and reclaiming some activities that we may already know how to do but may have forgotten about um, and studying history so that we can learn from those things too. But it also thinks about how we are going to practically apply those activities moving forwards in the future because, well, we have to. So we live in a world now with digital devices and digital technology. We live with social media platforms and they're not going to go anywhere. I'm pretty sure that um, the dissolution of Facebook or Instagram is not forthcoming on the horizon, um, sorry to say. So that means that we have to figure out how to live responsibly with these things in our life. We have to come up with guidelines and rules and maybe even like, uh, like codes of behavior that make sense uh, for existing in a world where these things are just a part of our lives. You also give rules that are not rules. <laughs> Five <laughs> rules on how to hang out. And one you say is uh, to uh, take time. You write that you must rest time away from the places where it has been sequestered and kept from us against our will. We must work to seize and redistribute the wealth that is time. And when we have done that, we must commit to the work of giving it all back to each other. But taking back our time is a very difficult thing for us to do. How can we take back our time when we are so dependent upon selling our time to survive? Where can we find the time to take back? Um, counterintuitively, my answer to that question starts with saying no to things. And this is actually something that I myself am very bad at. So in some ways, I think I wrote this book as maybe a self-help primer for myself or people like myself who are bad at saying no to things. Um, I'm a yes person by nature. I want to say yes to things. And the book Hanging Out is about saying yes to hanging out. But I recognize that in order to say yes to certain things, we have to say no to other things. So this means setting common sense boundaries. And it also means policing those boundaries in a sense. I don't want to use the word policing, but more like being vigilant about where the boundaries lie, understanding where they exist and being willing to fight for them. Um, so that can mean the boundaries between work and leisure or the boundaries between our working day and whatever comes afterwards um, or our boundaries between like, what is being asked of us and expected of us at work versus what are the extra things that we feel compelled to do, maybe for emotional reasons or because we're bowing to professional pressure or something like that. So um, taking time back starts with saying no to things that are not worth our time. And that's a really difficult distinction to make and it's a really hard thing to do, but it's very important if we're gonna say yes to each other and to hanging out and to other stuff. 
You also point out that the second rule, that's not really a rule, is take <laughs> risks. You explain how you moved to Burlington, Vermont, right as the pandemic began, so you couldn't go to any of the places where you normally find people hanging out as they were all closed. So you took to hiking in the mountains. At the top of the one, uh, you saw a fire tower where you climbed, and you met a couple of strangers who you exchanged phone numbers eventually and actually became friends. You mentioned how you found that the risks are very menial when it comes to talking with strangers. And you add, none of this would have happened, by the way, if my partner and I had been wearing earbuds or headphones at the time, something that I see a lot of hikers doing these days. So while we're speaking of taking risks, consider taking your headphones off now and then, too, <laughs> and exposing yourself to the potential of your real-world sonic environment. Earbuds are just another way we uh, willfully isolate ourselves, or at least it seems like it. And I know this is, again, neoliberal framing, but to what extent is that... All our fault, all our fault, our, all our individual fault that we choose to not hang out. Um, yeah, I'm very interested in the politics of headphones and um, earbud wearing, um, but I don't necessarily see it as our fault as people or as members of a society. I don't think that our reliance on them necessarily starts with us. I actually think it starts with conditions that we object to, and then we use headphones or earbuds as a way of trying to protest those conditions. But what we end up doing are actually like isolating ourselves um, from each other and building walls between ourselves and other people. So I get that one of the things that we try to do when we put in headphones or earbuds in a public place is we try to tune out our environment and exert some control over it. And I think the response to this happens because we feel like there is so little that is within our control. So we want to take control back where we can, and it's one small place where we can. So we put in the earbuds, we create our own sonic environment, and then we don't have to be exposed to like the random conversations of people on the street, or we don't have to like, you know, hear political opinions that we don't like or hear music that we don't like or whatever. Um, but in the meantime, too, we're also like creating this wall between ourselves and maybe a stranger who we might be able to talk to or maybe somebody who could offer us help or maybe even just things that we would overhear that we'd be interested in that would actually help us to form connections to other people as opposed to um, reinforcing the divisions between us. And the next rule that's not really a rule is take and create <laughs> opportunities. You write the pandemic that in having to forego a pre-programmed array of celebrations and events and get togethers. We have been forced, given a unique choice, one might also say, to reconsider the meaning and the pur purpose of such rituals. Has the pandemic revealed to us that our traditions, our annual parties or celebrations, that they are actually radical acts of hanging out? Because they're often connected with conservatism of celebrating, you know, Christmas or whatever, uh, New Year's, whatever holidays you celebrate with your family. Um, it's often seen as a, a kind of a conservative act. And I often see progressives as well as people on the left saying that they are opposed to these kinds of traditions and celebrations. So can these become radical acts of hanging out? Oh, absolutely. I think in a formal or cyclical or calendrical sense, maybe even, um, yeah, it makes sense to view some of these rituals as conservative in nature, that they're commemorating some sort of historical event or some sort of tradition that maybe um, progressives might feel at odds with, or like it doesn't work necessarily into, um, you know, their uh, view of the world. But hey, it's important to remember that, you know, Christmas took the place of summer of uh, winter solstice and Saturnalia. So like we have older traditions that go even further back beyond like how 
how we talk about them and know them now. And I also think that it's important to make traditions your own, um, to claim the space that, you know, rituals or parties or festivals or holidays take up in our calendar and to make it a uh, space that can be yours. And this is exactly what progressives once did with Labor Day um, in creating a day that was meant to draw attention to the workers' cause and to the history of what workers have accomplished in this country. You also mentioned to take care. What makes you believe that care is in short supply? And for that matter, neither is time or attention. Why do you think that time, attention, and care are not in short supply? Because it sure seems like they are. (laughs) It certainly does. I know. Um, I think we are encouraged to view these things as in short supply so that we will feel like we have to be more judicious or more parsimonious, or maybe even more conservative in how we spend them. Um, But I think the human capacity for care is huge. Um, This is like the number one thing that I place my faith in as a progressive is that we have the ability to care about each other and that um, communal causes are built from a bedrock of care. Um, I think we are encouraged to see care as a finite resource that like, if you care about one thing, you're not allowed to care about something else, or you don't have time to care about something else, or it would take too much out of you to care about this other thing. But I think that's sort of like a false equation. Um, We have the capacity to care for so much and for so many people in our world, especially if we say no to the right things, to the things that really don't deserve our care in the first place, well, then we have the opportunity to put it somewhere else. So I'm not going to share rule five. That's going to be a tease for (laughs) listeners. you got to go get (laughs) Sheila's book. And I'm telling you, it's really fascinating. Hanging out the radical power of killing time. We have been speaking with writer Sheila Liming. Sheila, we do this with all of our guests. I (laughs) promise. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question (laughs) we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. This is always (laughs) one of my favorite questions from hell because it's just so stupid. Is hanging out socialist because if it is we may have to denounce the horrors of hanging out next (laughs) um it's not by definition socialist but it certainly can be if you want it to be (laughs) that is the radical act of hanging out thank you so much for being on our show i really appreciate it whenever i see more than three people hanging out together i'll figure it's a socialist act (laughs) fair enough (laughs) thank you thank you so much and i really appreciate your writing and i look forward to having you on the show in the future Thank you very much. This was a delight. Take care. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell if what you just heard from Sheila Liming on how hanging out can be a radical act. Please become a subscriber to our Patreon podcast, which happens every or every Thursday. But this week it's happening on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Just go to this is hell or patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can just go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can support this is hell. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell. Did you just hit your head on the microphone? No, it's just my pen (laughs) on the table. It's loud. I don't know. (laughs) I'm trying to find the right paper. I mixed them all up. I wrote down a lot of stuff. That was an interesting interview. Oh, yeah. We were supposed to supposed to be bringing my iPad. We were supposed to be working on poll quotes during the interview. God, we're supposed to do stuff. all this work I know. while we're already working. <laughs> exactly. I'm pretty sure that was like not what the interview was about. <laughs> no, <but>. it wasn't. <laughs> Anyways, uh, when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Uh, how are our listeners responding so far? Sorry, my mic is like super loud. That 
<laughs> it's no big deal. Uh, we did all the Patreon ones yesterday. Let's go to uh, yes, whatever you want to do. Yes. Facebook, Twitter. I was trying to figure out what Echo was going on. Okay, so on Facebook, I don't think we've read any on Facebook, no. and we have quite a number of comments <laughs> awesome. here. Yes, when we seize the means of production. Let me get some background music here. When we seize the means of production, what can we produce once in a while? As a treat. <laughs> I like the dramatic pause. It's, um, it's, I you know. know. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds good to me too. Okay. <laughs> Let's see here. Our first response from three days ago was from Pete V. What can we produce once in a while as a treat? Pool noodles. Okay. Well, I guess I was kind of thinking of that too when I was talking about styrofoam earlier. Yeah. Maybe once in a while we can produce some styrofoam mm. as Ooh, a treat. Gross. Uh, Sounds wa- like the worst soup ever. <laughs> Watching R says earth shoes. Oh, God. Uh, Michael D says more means of production. Hey, look at that. Yeah, there's a loop. <laughs> Borky B says, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Cocaine seltzer. All right. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that what Coca-Cola is? Or it was. was <laughs> uh, when it was good. When it was good, yeah. But uh, now it's uh, corn syrup seltzer. <laughs> so our next response from this week's question from Hell, what, when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Sarah M says... I always thought those grain silos could be made over into awesome water slides. Hey, that's a good idea. I think it's a bad idea, because I'm from Phoenix, where they actually have a lot of water slides, and I don't like them. (laughs) Well, there's a good point. They're (laughs) terrifying. Water slides are terrifying and So it's not your problem with turning a grain silo into a water slide. It's just the whole concept of water slides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Turn it into something else, I suppose. I would suggest you stay away from the Wisconsin Dells. Uh Yeah. Why would I go to the Midwest for water slides? (laughs) Exactly. I I don't know, actually. I think maybe all the water parks are finally closing in Phoenix. I don't know. I ignore it. (laughs) Anyways, back to the question from Hal, which is when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Ray O says... This is hell merch. Oh, Jesus. That's a good one. Uh, Ronaldo Magaldi says, pasta fazool. Always. That's always his answer to the question from hell. <laughs> Anytime it's a noun. Sure. Uh, when, <laughs> good point. <laughs> when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Uh, Brayden S. says, A hundred foot statue of our beloved first comrade. It'll look great next to the others. All right. Who is that? I don't know. I don't know who you mean by first comrade. Is that Marx, perhaps? I don't know. I think it's Yahweh. <laughs> okay, uh, we still have quite a few. Let's, well, so we, let's should stop. Save we should, we should some get, yeah, for tomorrow. and let's get to Sebastian. And yes, yeah. do pers- we have Sebastian here? He is ready in the. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say. Uh, so we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell, and now it's time for historian Sebastian Vopper and the past inside the present when Sebastian gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present and today he's doing it for the very first time from his new home in Grand Rapids, Michigan take it away, Sebastian I believe you have some there you go 
the past inside the present. So it is February and February, man, this month is difficult to pronounce. Uh, and in the United States, that means it is Black History Month. So for the next four Mondays, including this one, I will present aspects of Black or African-American history on past inside the present. Uh, and this is often difficult history, not just because it makes many white people uncomfortable with what their ancestors being cast here as uh, the bad guys for once does. Um, and yes, while there certainly were decent white people in the past, and while there certainly also were bad non-white people, who isn't who isn't unequivocally bad in this case, it's pretty clear. It's us, the Europeans, who instituted race-based chattel slavery that used West African people as glorified beasts of burden for several centuries, and then only begrudgingly let go of that position, only to then turn around and keep the black men and women at the lowest ranks in uh, their society. Yes, some individual black people and some American Indian tribes also had slaves in the Americas. And no, those do not make things even remotely equal. And a, and a word on words, I am aware that enslaved person is currently the preferred term here to talk about, well, enslaved people. And while I appreciate the efforts to humanize the forced labor population of the American South in the past, I personally think using this term hides more than it does good, especially in this context. I am open to discussion. Write to me at seb, that's S-E-B, at thisishell.com if you disagree with this. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm just, I'm just open to discussion about this because I'm like, I, I have a fairly strong opinion on this, but um, I'm also aware that it's not really my, my place to have this opinion necessarily, so I can't be convinced otherwise. Um, I just believe that calling a slave a slave is a better educational tool, because America was built on the back of black slaves. And when I say that I am not reducing the abducted West African people to, or their offspring to, you know, something less than human, I am using this term to express my deeply heartfelt disdain for the Europeans who profited off this massive scale human trafficking project that made this country what it is. And also, I am approaching what to present, what to present during these segments in a pre-German way. It is Black History Month, and sure, I could talk about other things than the atrocities suffered by black people at the hands of white people. There is much more to black history than that. Uh, but white America at large is still refusing to engage with the atrocities it leveled on black America. Which brings me specifically uh, with my German, we always talk about our bad, his bad history background to, well, this. So today, I want to talk about slave resistance and how possible and actual actions of resisting enslavers informed the relationship between the forced labor masses and the white, quote-unquote, owners. Slave rebellions were always a threat to white masters, albeit the slave-to-white ratio in the population uh, was much more advantageous to rebellions and uprisings in South America than uh than this ratio was in in uh, on the northern continent in the north american colonies only south carolina had a population ratio where in most regions black slaves actually outnumbered free whites and white slave masters feared nothing as much as they feared a slave revolt the landowning class in colonial times already feared the general people the mob but when slavery replaced indentured servants specifically because these elites feared the unruly white people, 
they just became even more scared of slaves rising up against them. And this became especially pronounced after the su successful Haitian Revolution that ended after eight years of fighting in 1804, when the Haitian self-freed slaves kicked the French out. And Europeans never forgave them for that insolence, which, long story short, is, well, one of the prime reasons why Haiti, why Haiti is today the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But that is another story for another time. That the Haitian Revolution was successful proved to slave-owning whites that their fears were, in fact, grounded in reality. Slave uprisings, this revolution proved, could not only happen, but they could happen at scale and the slaves could actually succeed in those uprisings. The specter of the revolution would haunt white enslavers basically until emancipation ended the slavery system in the, in the United States. So to prevent Haiti from happening in North America, the slave masters found many ways to discourage rebellion and escape. They achieved this through different methods, all of them horrifyingly brutal and dehumanizing. Many slaves had families, and having loved ones meant that the slave masters could threaten these loved ones should a piece of human property deny obedience. Selling individual people off and thereby breaking the slave families up was one method of discipline. Another was enacting physical violence on family members. And slave owners also generally frequently engage in physical punishment. These were examples set with those who were caught plotting uprisings or actively resisting or disobeying. And these slaves were then subjected to public torture. They were hung or publicly burnt at the stake. They had body parts cut off or were outright decapitated with subsequent displaying cut off heads on stakes. Because in the eyes of white civilized Europeans, the black African savages had to be shown their place. Because cutting other people into pieces so that they keep giving unquestioning obedience and keep working for free is just the civilized thing to do, I guess. This is, of course, a running theme throughout African-European relations in North America, as is the fear of black uprisings. Police budgets today are what they are because of that. There is a straight, deeply embedded cultural line from the fear of slave revolts in the wake of the Haitian Revolution to the 1960s uprisings in places like Los Angeles, Detroit, and Cleveland, to the L.A. riots in 1992, and again to the Black Lives Matter movement today, in which white people fear that black people will organize and strike out against them. But slaves had other ways to resist their masters than through overt measures. They would collectively slow down work, they would feign illness, pretend ignorance, and sabotage work equipment. If you're paying attention and know your racist tropes, these methods of subtle resistance in turn would then give rise to many racist stereotypes that still endure today. Dragging out jobs gave rise to the stereotype that black people are lazy, generally prefer idleness to hard work, and require the whip to work well. Pretending ignorance gave rise to the stereotype that blacks were innately not as smart as whites. Stealing from masters and interfering with the work process would give rise to the stereotype that blacks are innately nefarious and untrustworthy. And many of these stereotypes born out of slave resistance would go on to survive beyond slavery, beyond Jim Crow, beyond the civil rights movement until today. Many white Americans still believe these stereotypes as truth today, and also many black Americans have internalized them as well and believe them to be true about their fellow African-American Amer uh, citizens, uh, uh, brothers, sisters, and so on and so forth. And also these methods of resistance themselves would survive for a long time since they proved viable, not just 
under slavery, but also in the racial regimes that followed. Nonetheless, these methods of covert rebellion and resistance taught the slaveholders the lesson that pushing their human property too hard would end up costing them more than than uh, if they did not. Another method of resistance was simply hitting the bricks. Slaves ran away. But since slavery was a race-based system and white people would get suspicious if there was a stray black person running around, well, uh, the more things changed, I guess, uh, runaway slaves were basically always a problem. But where could they go? In the Southeast, many runaway slaves joined up with the American Indian groups uh, present in the, in the region, which in southern Georgia and later then in Florida gave birth to the Seminole Nation, a native tribe that consisted of both Indians and runaways. And white Americans waged several wars of extermination against them, but the Seminoles kept the upper hand and to this day pride themselves being undefeated, since they never accepted a peace treaty with the United States. But becoming a Seminole was not an option for most escaped slaves. In the 19th century, abolitionists began organizing the so-called Underground Railroad, which, no, that was not some sort of subway system, but a network of safe houses meant to allow runaways to make it first out of the southern slave states into the free north, and then, once the Fugitive Slave Act came into play, further north across the border into Canada. So in 1950, Congress enacted a law that essentially compelled free states to return the escaped property, i.e. enslaved forced laborers who thought they had made it out of the jurisdiction where they were basically cattle to their rightful owners. Because the slaveholding South kind of low-key always dominated the country in these things. And, well, slaves are property and the Constitution guarantees live liberty and property. You get the gist. Basically, slaves running away became such a widespread problem that the institution itself started to become somewhat untenable, especially in the southern states that bordered on the northern three states. So the southerners bullied the northerners into submission. It's about property after all. Seriously, read some of the debates of the time. The overall tone and tenor of pro-slavery southerners sounds eerily similar to pro-gun nutjobs today. And then lastly, another act of resistance of the slave population was just be unknowable and keep their true life secret. Historian Lawrence Levine writes about this in the classic Black Culture and Black Consciousness about how when white people try to study slave culture, it would take them years and years for the black people to open up and reveal any of their own traditions and songs and religious rites, even long after slavery had ended. Because slaves often held secret church gatherings at night, practicing their own takes on Christianity, especially so when the slave masters began to Christianize their property eventually, because the version of Christianity that was preached to them emphasized obedience to hierarchy and certainly didn't say anything about letting any people go. <sighs> I'll try to get into something less depressing next week briefly before things get real awful again when i talk about the history of reconstruction after slavery ended this is hell after all and we have we have a reputation to uphold <laughs> we do have a reputation to uphold hey i got a couple two questions for you first of all what's the weirdest thing that you have experienced so far living in grand rapids michigan and second in april one uh, or in march sorry when uh, black history month is over can you Please do a past inside the present about the history of Grand Rapids. <laughs> um, 
I don't know much about the history of Grand Rapids yet. I would have to actually do some studying for that. But I tell you sure. what, I'll send. Uh, there's a there's a really rudimentary book about the history okay. of Grand Rapids, and I'll send that to you. But so, what's right. the weirdest thing that you've had happen in uh, Grand Rapids? Uh, I have experienced what a Michigan left is. <laughs> I, I had no idea if that was a thing, and we drove down the road to trying to get to a grocery store, and Chloe was like, "Ah, I got to do a Michigan left here." And I'm like, "Wait, what?" Oh yeah, right. Chuck Chuck mentioned that at some point, and and then yeah, so yeah, that's that's probably so the, the Michigan thing. Michigan Left is not a political organization. Yeah, I thought it was <laughs> when when you first mentioned it. I was like, okay, I guess the left in Michigan can be kind of you know maybe a little obnoxious. It's no, that you can't too. make a left hand turn. Mm, yep. You have to make a right hand turn, and then go down the street a little ways, and then turn around and make a left. It's the yeah, Michigan it's, left. It's really weird. It's really weird. And I think it's got to be the cause of many accidents that happen right along the Michigan, Indiana, mm-hmm. Ohio, Wisconsin borders because no, yeah. it's the weirdest thing in the world. And you put a roundabout next to one of those, you're going into a fourth dimension at that point. It's really disturbing. Sebastian, until next week, I'm looking forward to having you back on. I really appreciate it. Uh, congratulations on your move. I'm glad that it has worked out so far. And I'm looking you, forward to... You. What's that? Thank you. Thank you. And Always a pleasure. Looking forward to speaking with you next week. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Lindsay, who is our next guest here on This Is How, our upcoming guest, the next person we'll be discussing, talking with, conversing with, whatever. Tomorrow... We will have human rights attorney Nora Arakat. You're correct. Posted, who posted the Boston Review article, uh, Designing the Future in Palestine. Palestinian women and feminist organizations are reimagining what liberation can look like beyond national independence. You know, uh, Lindsay, uh, the one thing I want to mention to you about this uh, conversation that we're going to be having on Thursday is uh, Nora um, equates or includes Palestinian people within indigenous peoples, as she should, and now the Palestinian uh, feminists are embracing a lot of indigenous ideas of socializing instead of depending on the state, depending on the society to become independent. It's absolutely fascinating, and I think it's an article that you would really love. Also coming up uh, later this week, we will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Friday at patreon.com slash thisishell at 10 a.m. podcast shortly after at the same place. We will hear a singular moment of truth. We'll be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. And uh, let's see, anything else? I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. Hang out with me, members of the This Is Hell crew, and other This Is Hell listeners at Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think that's happening tonight, Wednesday night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. It starts around 6, ends around 9 o'clock this evening. Drop by, join us, and if you do, I'll give you a free book if you ask. That's the This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening starting around 6 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, the bar directly downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>